we're beginning our new year of uh, just a fresh start of things. And I'm glad that you're here. I'm excited about where God is taking us as a church, as a body of Christ, and what He's laying out for the future for us. And I can't wait to be a part of it. And I'm, and I'm hoping you'll just, just tag right along with us as we go forward and, and just experience this new beginning with Christ. Um, we all have questions. I've gotten lots of questions, and uh, other people ask me questions. Some questions really are, are, are quite... Uh, they're simply built on curiosities at times. And other questions, they're, they're a little bit more deep in their understanding and more meaningful uh, with them. And this morning, I want us to explore a few questions. Basically, the one is, is the Bible really God's Word? How do we know that? Can, can we prove it? It's widely accepted around the world that the Bible is the most read, it's the most loved, it's the most controversial book of all times. Um, the Bible is unlike any other book in that it, we, we see that it proclaims itself to contain within it the very words of God. And, and God speaks to us in all generations through it. It's His book. It's His voice to a, to a world. Uh, the Bible itself testifies to that fact. When we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16 and 17, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's even what it testifies about itself. It, it says it's, it's God's book. He's breathed life into this, and it's good for us to read it. Now the question today for us is this, how do we know that it is really God's word? Just because it claims to be God's Word, or are there other things that we can look at that might help us understand a little bit better? I came across this great picture on the internet earlier this week uh, about quotes, and the quote said this, The problem with getting quotes off of the internets is you don't always know if they are genuine. And that was quoted from Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you saw it too, didn't you? Yeah, they misspelled the words you. All right, so. I mean, it's a, great, it's a great quote, but there's a growing number of skeptics about things that are put out in our world today. Uh, and, and really, people, scholars and, and people who say, well, the Bible really isn't the Bible. You can't accept, they explain all the things that are out there as being true and factual, and that no more is anything even on the Internet reliable, if you can believe that. I mean, it seems like there's so many quotes that are attributed to Abraham Lincoln, which really they are not his. Max Lucado, uh, he's a preacher with the Church of Christ down in Texas. He's written a lot of books. Maybe you've read some of his things, or maybe you've been to a conference and he's spoken. But he has this comment about the Bible. He says, the Bible has been banned, burned, scoffed, and ridiculed. Scholars have mocked it as foolish. Kings have branded it as illegal, and a thousand times over, the grave has been dug and the dirge has begun. But somehow, the Bible never stays in the grave. Not only has it survived, it has thrived, and it's the single most popular book in all of history. I think I might agree with what he has to say. So what has made the Bible, I mean, it is, it is endured for all time. What makes these words and these pages something that is going to last not only from this generation but the next generation and a thousand generations yet to come? 
Has God really spoken to us in it? I mean, is, 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 if so, how do we know that the Bible really is His Word? I thought I'd like to share with you a little bit as we get this fresh start with our new year and I get a fresh start with the Word. The first thing I want to look at is this. There will be three things that we're going to kind of explore today. The first one is documentations about the Bible. Has it been corrupted or, or is it correct? I mean, what, how do we know? Well, some people will, will indicate that corruption takes place when somebody copies. Bart Ehrman, he's a critic of, of, of faith and of the Scripture, and he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. And in his book, he claims that the process of copying and recopying the Bible over and over again through the centuries has resulted in so many mistakes and changes that we cannot be sure that what we actually have in our Scripture really is what was originally written. Critics of, the, of Christianity claim that the transmission of the Bible over to age no more reliable than somebody playing a 2,000-year-old game of telephone. Remember where you, you whisper into ear one person a statement, and by the time it makes it around the room, the whole sentence has changed. Some of the, the typos that have been put into uh, the Bible through the years, I think maybe I'd look at a few of them, especially since more of the modern printing has taken place, and we know that I can type real fast, and sometimes I look at my sermon and I go, what is that word I put? <laughs> and and it, it just it happens. There, there's common mistakes based on human error, and, and we've been caught in doing this. Man is not perfect. We understand it. We make mistakes. Matter of fact, the New Age band out of England, the Human League, they wrote a song back in 1986 about people making mistakes. What they said in their song was, I'm only human, flesh and blood. I, I'm made human. I'm born to make mistakes. They sang it a little bit better than that, but you get the gift. They, they, they recognize that we have a fallibility about us. But the problem even in their song is they say we were born to make mistakes. We weren't born to make mistakes. We were born to be perfect, to be within the image of God. It is by our choosing and our choices that we have made mistakes or intentionalities that were wrong. Well, some of the typos that have gone into the Bible through the years, I thought I'd share with you a few of them. Some of them are kind of funny, and they're a little bit humorous behind them. The first one is this. It's what has become known as the basketball Bible. Now, the reason they call it the Basketball Bible, because in the Old Testament, when God was speaking to them as to what they should do in construction of the tabernacle, one of the words that was translated or mistranslated is they, they put the word hoops in with a P instead of the word hooks with a K. And so the tabernacle was made with a bunch of hoops. So kind of like a basketball court, I guess. They could go in and play in the tabernacle, big gymnasium, instead of all the hooks that were there. In 1631, a Bible was translated or copied from the original King James Version, which was made in 1611. So now we're only talking 20 years apart. But in this translation, this copy of the Bible, they made a little bit of a mistake. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and God gave a bunch of laws out, there are ten commandments that are rather important for us to live by. The seventh one was a little misprint in their typesetting. Instead of saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, their text said, thou shalt commit adultery. That Bible has since become known as the adulterous Bible, the sinner's Bible, or the wicked Bible. In 1964, a little bit closer to our day and age, there's a Bible that had some misprints in it. 
and it has become known as the Fashionista Bible. Because in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul is telling Timothy to encourage the women to, to adorn themselves in modest apparel, the translation actually said, adorn themselves in modern apparel. So we can all dress however we feel in our, in our relationship with, with worshiping God. But I think my favorite one is this. It comes out of the Bible Society of, Bible Society of South Africa. And in one of their translations into the Sotho language there in southern Africa, the typesetters misplaced one letter. The word Jwala is what they typed, means beer. It should have been Jwalo, which means so. Now that really doesn't have too big of a problem unless you're reading in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9 and that scripture reads this that that and God said let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and it was beer <laughs> I think our world would enjoy that translation but the point is this the point is this none of this none of these typos really are problematic they they don't diminish the the reality of what scripture is. And the reason is because these are just one translation's mistake. When you compare them to others throughout history, you, f you find the ones that have mistakes in them. And when there's a majority of the others that don't have it, you think, well, they're probably right and this one was wrong. We figure those out. And, and, and none of those mistakes are, are, they're easily caught because of that. But we have to look at this. The Bible is not just one translation, and that's it. We have so many more recognitions of manuscripts, those original manuscripts when they were made, and we've got thousands of them. But even though the original ones, the first printing or the first writing from the scribes may have been lost in the sands of time, we still have copies because the scribes were very meticulous in the manner in which they copied the scriptures word for word. Matter of fact, the Jewish scribes were so meticulous in their copying God's word that they counted the number of letters on each line. I mean, now that's getting a little nitpicky. But they wanted to make sure that they did not make a mistake when they copied God's word for us. Now, I want to share with you a little bit. In some of the documentation that has been discovered through, through the years, we have more than 14,000 manuscript copies of the Old Testament. Some of those copies date back to 250 B.C. All right? Now, granted, some of the books may have been written before that time frame, but we're talking a collection of the Old Testament. They'll have a full thing. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the Qumran community, uh, south of, of Jerusalem there, down towards the Dead Sea, it's amazing what, what they've discovered in, in some of those, uh, those caves. The New Testament and its uh, copies has probably been a little bit better preserved than the Old Testament copies were. Matter of fact, there are 5,000, more than 5,300 ancient manuscripts that have the full New Testament in them. And there are also more than 10,000 copies of the New Testament and the Old Testament in the Latin translation. And over 9,300 copies of other translations in other languages as well. So you put all these together, you can find out where there's mistakes and where there's a uniformity across the board. Altogether, when we look at the original manuscripts that date back thousands of years for us, there are over 25,000 
copies of Scripture that we have in our existence. And, and, and the earliest New Testament passages that we have date back to about 125 A.D., less than 60 years after they were written. Now, to put that in perspective, let's kind of look at some other scriptures or some other books that have been copied through the years and, and, and compare the Bible to them. Many of you have probably read Homer's Iliad, at least I know you, I had to in high school. And Homer's Iliad, for example, was written around the same time as the book of Isaiah in our, New, in our Old Testament. But we only have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. And the earliest copy of that dated back 500 years after Homer had passed. All right? The earliest copies that we have of the writing of Plato, whom I'm sure you have read as well, they date 1,200 years after Plato died. But we also like the Greek, guy, the Greek guys that are there writing things and speaking out things, such as Aristotle. Aristotle has some phenomenal things that he has written, but some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, which are really only 49 copies of Aristotle's work, they were actually discovered to be written about 1,400 years after Aristotle. And yet we put a lot of weight on Plato and Homer and Aristotle, but we want to deny that the Scripture, who has more, more documentation about it, that it's reality there. So the science of textual criticism uh, plays into a large role in this, and it's demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that the New Testament has been, has been accurately and reliably handed down generation to generation. Matter of fact, the Bible itself tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And I believe that there is overwhelming evidence of the documentation, the manuscripts that testify to that fact. The early documentation does not prove that the Bible is divine, but it does prove that the Bible has been faithfully preserved generation to generation. So the second area that I think we need to look at this morning is going to be this, the discoveries of the Bible. The discoveries of the Bible, they're going to, it's either going to be proof or poppycock, one way or the other. It's either going to be evidence or just it's falsity. So here we go. Some years ago, a, a group of, of thinkers, just, just free thinkers up in Scotland, they had decided, as their atheistic minds would permit them to do, that they would make a, a plan whereby they might reveal to the world, as they put it, that the Bible was really not God's Word. And so they had established a way that they were going to go out and do their own research with an atheistic bent to it rather than somebody coming at it with a religious idea and trying to proof text things. They decided they were going to travel into areas and they established one young man that was going to go and go over to Asia Minor where a lot of the Bible stories take place. They were going to travel around southern Europe and go into the Mediterranean seas and onto the islands and do his own excavation and archaeological work to discover that the Bible really is just fabrication. So they selected this young man by the name of Sir William Ramsay. Sir William Ramsay, he went and in the course of his investigation he not only found that every historical fact in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, which was going to be his specialty, that those things were accurate through his archaeological discoveries, and they, they proved that, that the, these things were right. So he spent his, his time writing 
than in defense of the gospel because as a result of his trip there to prove the Bible was false, Sir William Ramsley actually became a Christian and returned to Scotland on fire for the Bible. And so he wrote this words. He said, Luke's historical accuracy supported by archaeological evidence provides credibility to his depiction of Jesus Christ and the accuracy of his writings. The book of Luke is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Now that's coming from a man who in his atheistic youth, brilliant mind and brilliant scientist and archaeologist was going to prove the Bible wrong, actually proved to himself that it was right and that it is more accurately described because of what Luke had written. Now the Bible in 2 Peter chapter, two, chapter 1 verse 16 makes this statement. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What Peter is actually saying as he's writing his letters here to the church, he says, I'm not telling you the stories that I heard Jesus tell. I'm not telling you about the things that other people have talked about. What I am telling you about is things that I have seen with my own eyes, that I've heard with my own ears, that I myself have even spoken on my own lips. I am telling you as an eyewitness to stand before you that I have seen, I have heard, and this is reliable. This is truth of what I'm saying. It's not just some made-up thing. So the archaeological evidence in, in all of these discoveries within the Bible, about the Bible, it continues to confirm that Peter and the rest of the apostles, as they began to write, and the men who wrote the story, they weren't just making up these stories. Now, in July 2011, archaeologists discovered a city. It's in an area that the Philistine nation used to live, and we read about them in the Bible, the Philistines, those were the bad guys who were always combating against the people of Israel. But the city has a name to it. It's called Gath. The city of Gath is spoken about in the Bible. And there's this really bad guy that was from Gath, and you may remember him by the name of Goliath. He fought a little bitty guy by the name of David, and he lost. Goliath, that giant of a man, there were actually five brothers. They were all extremely tall. And interesting, if you read through Scripture through the time, you'll discover that all five brothers were killed by the Israelites. Not just Goliath. Well, in this city of Gath, they have discovered even that name, that heroic man that they had there, Goliath. Giving proof, once again, that even one of the stories in the Old Testament Bible has some factuality behind it. A century ago, in 1906, archaeologists were discovering as they were digging around in, in, in some areas up in northern part of, of, of the, the Middle East there, a, another civilization that had never been discovered before. But yet the Bible talked about it all the time, the Hittites. You may have read about them if you've read your scripture or heard something about the Hittites. These Hittites were fair-skinned, they were tall with long noses. And, and people are like, there's no other record anywhere about Hittites. No other documentation in all of history spoke about this, this nation of people, this king or their civilization and, and, and who they were except the Bible. But in 1906, they discovered a city, and not just a city, they discovered documentations of a library containing historical records of kings and Hatmusis of a city that was there, this kingdom of the Hittites. 
It's impressive that we look at all these things. Scholars also rejected the existence of a pool of Siloam. And if you go to the Temple Mount, on the northern part, there has been dug down through 90 feet of stonework, and they have discovered the area called the Pool of Siloam. But there's something unique about this. It's not just discovering the Pool of Siloam. But Hezekiah, when he was surrounded by Sennacherib of the Babylonian, the Syrian Empire, he built a tunnel and aqueduct the water down to an area within the city that they could have fresh water. And even though an invading army was surrounding them, the invading army didn't get that fresh water, they had it. Well, they found in 2011 another section and a tunnel in which dates back to Hezekiah's time that leads us into this pool of Siloam. Last year, in August 2019, there was a ring found, this signet ring. It's just a little bitty, little bitty thing. It's, it's smaller than your dime. I mean, it's just really tiny. But it's made out of tin, and it has an inscription on it that gives a lot of evidence about a person who would have had this. This is a signet ring that was used in the kingdom whenever someone from the house of the, of the, royal, uh, the royal house would have sent a letter out they would have put wax on it and they would have sealed it with their ring. And it gives the name and the position of who sent this letter. Well, they found this ring just in August. This ring is, is the, the ring that has, bears the name of King David's son. And the inscription across it says, Edenyahu al-Sher al-Abiet, which means Edenyahu by the appointment of the house. Well, we know about Adonihu because our Bible speaks about him being a son of King David. And the only way he would have the appointment by the house gives him the authority to, to steal these letters. So it's a significant find just recently. That ring, that little signet ring, dates all the way back to the 7th century B.C. during the time in which the Temple of Solomon was being built. That's pretty good discovery, I would think, just here in our most recent days. But these discoveries, and literally there are thousands more of them, thousands more of these discoveries that, that demonstrate that the people, the places, the particulars of the Bible are rooted in real life history. These aren't just some made up stories. And you contrast that with other books that speak to the fact that they believe they are also contained within the very words of God. Let's take, for example, the Book of Mormon, for instance. The Book of Mormon claims to be comparable with the Bible in at it that it actually says it is the most correct book on earth. Now, it is supposedly being written in a reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. And it tells the story of two great civilizations that migrated to America from the Middle East, and they settled in the land of Moran. The problem, however, is this. There has never been any archaeological evidence for the language of Egyptian hieroglyphics, this reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. There's no archaeological evidence that these two civilizations ever existed. There is no archaeological evidence about the land of Moran here in the United States and the Americas. And there's no anthropological evidence that any Native Americans migrated from Middle East. In short, there isn't a shred of evidence right now to back up 
and to prove that the Book of Mormon is real. But yet, it's going to compare itself with all the evidence that has been discovered about our Bible. And the archaeologist spade just continues to dig and dig. I can't wait. In, in just a couple of months, I'm going back to Israel. And this, this time I get to go underneath the city into the rabbinical tunnels. And we're going to go and explore some new areas and, and discover some... It's when you see for with your own eyes the things that the Bible has spoken about and you get to, to look upon the, the archaeological finds, it is phenomenal. And history of something that was there, walking on the steps on the southern temple of, of Jerusalem that were there over 2,000 years ago. And here in America, we can't go back that far. You might go over here on the other side of St. Louis and find the Cahokia Mounds, and you'll see some things of civilizations that were there thousands of years ago, but nothing that's recorded for us today. Now, the Bible is trustworthy when it comes to its historical people, places, and things, and all the particulars that go with it. Then it gives us good evidence that we should possibly believe that it is the Word of God. Now, the final test is this. The Bible's inspiration, or its divination. Divination of the Bible, or prophecy, or poppycock. What does divination mean? Well, I looked in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, and this is what divination means. Divination, according to Webster's, is the art or practice that seeks to foresee or foretell future events or discover hidden knowledge, usually by the interpretation of omens or by the aid of supernatural powers. The Bible's word for this divination is prophecy. We see it all the time in the scripture, and it records predictions of events that could not be known or predicted by just chance or common sense. So let's face it, I mean, we can barely predict what the weather's going to be like. And I wrote that earlier this week. <laughs> and here we are today. We just don't know. We have a good idea, but sometimes even that confounds us. We might think that something might happen next week or tomorrow or next month or next year, but if we were to predict something that takes place in 500 years, well, we would never know if it were true. But if we recorded that prediction and somebody in 500 years reads it, and they say, this is, this is actual, everything they said happened, then we've got some reality behind it. So, the Bible has recorded for us some events. One of the most amazing records of this prophecy is found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It's one of the, the prophets there. And it's found in Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's had a dream. And in this dream, he's got this vision of this, this man. And it's all different kinds of, of things about him, and iron and brass and, and, and of his wardrobe and who he is and what his feet are like. And, and he just can't get anybody to give him an interpretation of what his dream is. And so Daniel says, let me talk with you. And Daniel begins to explain to him what this dream is about. So let's read what he says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king and he said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
And then he goes on to describe what this vision and what this dream is all about. It's about four empires that are going to rise after his, which unfortunately we cut pretty short is part of the, the, the interpretation as well. But he says these empires are going to arise. There's going to be four great empires, and finally there's going to be a fifth empire that's going to be established during the reign of that fourth empire, and that final kingdom is going to last forever. He goes into the description of the Messiah coming and reigning upon that kingdom. We look back in hindsight, which is the best way that we have to follow some of these foretelling things. And as he predicted this, over the next 500 years, as Daniel said that king's dream, it plays out. And then the church is established. The rise and the fall of these four empires is the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. And during the Roman Empire, there would be a new kingdom established that would reign forever, which is the kingdom of Christ. And he also predicts that God would establish this kingdom during that reign of the fourth empire. And we look back now in our historical setting with our, with our glasses and we say, I see the fulfillment of all these things. In fact, Daniel also predicts, predicts exactly the time in which Messiah would come. He tells us that it's after the temple in Jerusalem was built, but before it is destroyed for the second time, roughly 500 years from now. Which the Magi from the east were probably reading Daniel and they knew. It's about time. Let's start looking for a star. There are dozens of Old Testament prophecies that were made about Jesus. As a matter of fact, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that were made about Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, he fulfilled every one of the Old Testament prophecies. Every one of them. Now, it'd be easy if he fulfilled, you know, one or two or ten or twenty, but he's not missed on a single one. Prophecies that we, we look back at, that he would be born from the family and the lineage of David, and Jesus was there. Being born in the city of Bethlehem, such as Micah told us, he was born in Bethlehem. Entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and we know that the Scripture tells us, and historians speak about him coming and riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry, being betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver, being crucified, being buried in a rich man's tomb. And then there are countless others that he's fulfilled. And Jesus himself also made some predictions, some foretelling prophecies, he included a very clear prediction concerning the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem itself. Listen to what he says in Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So he's telling them, you're going to see in your lifetime the armies surrounding Jerusalem and recognize it's going to be over. Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, as they're walking out of the temple, he's chatting with his disciples, and they're looking at the magnificence of this temple that Herod had built, and they're talking about its construction. About, it took 42 years or 46 years to build this temple. And he says, you see all these, do you? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's interesting. Because Jesus' prediction was actually fulfilled 40 years later. The Romans, 
they were trying to put down an insurrection of people in, in Jerusalem area, and they just had, had enough of it. And so Caesar sent his army in there to just annihilate them. And so we discover in August of 70 A.D., in that month time, the Roman army killed over a million Jews living in the city of Jerusalem. And not only that, they destroyed the city and they tore it up and they tore the temple apart and they tore every building and structure around there apart and not one single stone was left on, side, up to, on top of itself. You can read that whole full bloody account in the book of Josephus, the historian, in Wars 5 and 6. Now, in his book, The Archaeology of the Jerusalem Area, that was printed back in 1987, Harold Moore is the president of the Near East Archaeological Society. He confirms that not a single building stone remained in place. This is what he says. He says, we do not have any remains of the Herodian temple itself because of devastating Roman destruction A.D. 70. Not a single building stone is left in place after they destroyed it. Fulfilling exactly what Jesus told his disciples as they were heading out of the temple that day. Lean Rittmeyer, Lean is an archaeologist architect, and he's been involved recently in all of Jerusalem's major excavations. And he was chief architect on the Temple Mount that we have there today. And, and on, on the excavations, he states on his website, so you can go to Ritt, uh, Rittenmeyer, Rittenmeyer's archaeological design. He says, in 70 A.D., this splendid structure that had taken 46 years to build, as we're told in John chapter 2, verse 20, it was destroyed by the Romans. And the only vestiges of the compound to survive the destruction were the four retaining walls that support the temple platform. The best known today is the Western Wall. We call it the Weeping Wall. You've seen pictures on TV, I'm sure, that everybody goes there and they'll pray at that wall and they'll cry at that wall and they'll write things out and they'll tuck it into the cracks of those. These stones are huge, and the weight of them, surely they're tons just to move, but yet somehow the only thing that is remaining is the bottom section of the platform on which the Temple Mount was built. And that wall was surrounding the old city. But the temple itself, destroyed and gone. So predictive prophecy is proof, really, I think, of the Bible's divine inspiration. And it ought to convince even the most hard-boiled skeptic that, that it's real. And in the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 29, he says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. But what's he talking about there? He's talking about his ascending into heaven and his building a place for you in his father's house and that he will one day come and return and take us to be where he is. That's one prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. And I pray that I will see it with my own eyes and that you experience it with yours as well. You know, the documentation of the Bible, the discoveries of the Bible, the divination of the Bible, all these things combined together give us some proof that the words of God that we have spoken right here within the, in the Bibles that we have cherished and loved for so long, that there is, there is proof and evidence that it's not wrong. It is accurate in everything. It has not been ever proven to be something of falsehood.
Even though skeptics want to try and do that, they've not proven that yet. All they do is themselves come closer to the knowledge of who God is in themselves. So you're not just reading the words of men when you read the Bible. You're actually reading the words of God. Because every word, as it said earlier, is inspired by God. And it's breathed out by Him. He is the very Word itself. If you go on into the book of John and the Gospel that John writes, fellas, if you want to come down, Rob, it's described that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. But he goes on there in that first chapter of John, and he describes for us that that Word took on flesh and blood and dwelt among men in the form and the fashion of Jesus, the Son of God. The Word of God is living, it's active, it's alive. It has the ability to cut through the bone and the marrow and to divide even the heart of man. Because it's, it's so powerful. Not only was it so powerful in the day that it was written to the generation of people who received it firsthand, but it's alive today. It doesn't matter what your age, when I'm 12 and I read it, and then when I'm 25 and I read it, and when I'm 53 and I read it, it's the same, and it inspires me, and it fills me with hope because I know that what He has said within there, the promises He has made, they are true, they are factual, and they're going to be life-changing. And for you, get a fresh start this year, and open up the Scriptures, and begin to allow them to change and transform your life. There's reality in what they have to say. And I know that there's no other book in this world that will have such an impact as this one. Because this book is alive. Will you stand with me? And let's sing.